It is always just an absolute joy to be with you, and I just cannot thank you enough for the invitation extended to be with you again this evening. We, um, we at Wetumpka, you know, all of the congregations that are part of the body of Christ are sister congregations, but we feel at Wetumpka just an extra bond with you at, here at Delray, and we just uh, love and appreciate you, what you mean to the Lord's kingdom uh, the example that you are to this community and the work that you do in supporting mission work around the world is just, you, you are absolutely to be commended for what you do and who you are. And we just really, really appreciate this congregation so very much. So we send greetings to you from Wetumpka. Uh, this is indeed, as uh, Brother, Dane, Brother Dean said that I mentioned to him, this is an intimidating topic. In a way, because... If we don't have a proper appreciation for uh, Jesus and uh, the fact that he took on flesh and experienced the human condition while he was here on the earth for some 33 years, if we don't have a, a proper appreciation, understanding, acknowledgement, and acceptance of that, then, then we're in big trouble. Because if we don't believe in Jesus the man, uh, we have no mediator when we stand before God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so if we don't believe in the manhood of Christ, if we don't believe uh, that he was while he was here, both God and man, then we've got no mediator. And I don't want to stand before God with no mediator, do you? So we've got to embrace it, we've got to appreciate it, we've got to... Uh, understand it as best that we can. And I think that's part of the problem is, can we fully understand Jesus being both God and man at the same time? Can we fully comprehend that? Can we fully grasp that? I think it's impossible for us to fully grasp and fully comprehend, but just because we don't fully grasp or fully comprehend something, does it mean then we have to rewrite it or uh, turn it into something different? Yeah, I don't understand and comprehend calculus. But I'm not going to start rewriting formulas so that it's dumbed down to a way that I can understand it. Just because we can't fully grasp Jesus while he was in the flesh being both God and man doesn't mean we need to start messing with it, toying with it, changing our idea of it in the way that it was going on even back during the apostolic age. I know you know very well John begins his gospel account very differently from what we sometimes call Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. He's writing it sometime later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs, and he begins in a way drastically different from the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke began through inspiration their gospel accounts. One of the reasons why we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired John to open up his gospel account so differently from the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did is because already during the lifetime of John, in between Matthew, Mark, and Luke's writings and John's writing, already Jesus' deity had come under attack. And there were people who had even infiltrated Christianity and were claiming to be Christians, but they were saying, listen, this Jesus... He was great, he was awesome, but that was not God in the flesh. And so the, the idea that Christ dwelled among, uh, dwelt among us, that he condescended, that he was the Word, that he was the one intricately involved in the creation in the beginning, he was the one that in him was life, he was the light, all of these things, 
And he became flesh, John 1 and verse 14, and dwelt among us. This, this idea was already being contradicted by those who were claiming to be Christians even during the lifetime of one of the apostles. And so you have John, through inspiration, opening up his gospel, dealing with this, dealing with the fact that the one that we call Christ, the one that we call Jesus, he was in eternity the Word, the Logos. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made was made. In him was life. And he was the light of the world. And then he became flesh and dwelt among his creation. And so John is hammering away at the fact that you don't need to listen to anyone who claims that this man that we call Christ was not everything he claimed he was. You remember in John chapter 8 and verse 24, he says to some unbelieving Pharisees, unless you believe that, I think the, the best translation for that passage is unless you believe that I am, if you connect it with John chapter 8 and verse uh, 59, when he says before Abraham was, I am. And you remember the question that preceded Jesus saying that, the, uh, the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old and you say that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, well, before Abraham was, I am. Where do we remember seeing that name for God, I am? Wasn't that how God named himself from the burning bush and talking to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3? And so Jesus is saying in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I was the voice that was coming out of the burning bush, I was God who was speaking to Moses, your, your father. Unless you believe that about me, you will die in your sins. That's why those Jews picked up stones and desired to, throw, uh, to stone him right then and there in John chapter 8 because they understood fully what he was saying about himself. I am, while you see me, I look like a man. I'm in the appearance of a man. I'm in the form of a man. I'm experiencing the human condition, but I am God in human form. It's why he was able to accept worship. It's why he was able to, when, when Thomas said, after finally coming to a belief in him, seeing him in human form in his resurrected state, seeing the, uh, the scar still in his hands, he says, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't contradict him, counter him, rebuke him. Jesus, while in the flesh, was indeed God. But there were some in the first century who were rejecting this idea. There were Gnostics who believed that deity would not touch human flesh. And so they believed that it was impossible for deity, for God, who is pure, to inhabit what they believed to be inherently evil flesh. So they said there's no way. There's no way that this man Jesus could have been both God and man at the same time. So they rejected the whole idea. In fact, there was one Gnostic, Serenthus, uh, who in his teachings said that Jesus was the biological child of both Joseph and Mary became Christ at his baptism when he was 30 years old. And so he was both Jesus physical and the Christ spiritual. But at his crucifixion, the Christ departed because God cannot die was his belief. And so you have these kinds of ideas circulating even during the time of the Apostle John. 
It's why he made this statement in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So you want to know, in a nutshell, the world has gotten so confused and has tried to concoct this idea of, of the Antichrist, this singular being who's going to come on the scene and, and usher in a, a period of tribulation. Antichrist represents anyone who denies that Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, was both God and man. So when we talk about how serious of a topic this is, how important this is to appreciate this, if we don't believe in Jesus the man, we have no mediator. Because Paul says, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And if we don't believe in the manhood of Jesus Christ, if we don't believe that he lived among us, still being God, but while being God, also experiencing living life as a man, then we're antichrist. I don't want to be an antichrist, and I do not want to not have a mediator when I stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. So we have to fully embrace, understand, appreciate, accept the fact that when Jesus lived among us, he was not, as some of the other Gnostics claim, pretending to be deity. No, he was God. He was God in human form. Yet he was fully experiencing the human condition. James chapter 1 and verse 13 says that God cannot be tempted, yet we know in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus, while in the flesh, was. Why? It's not because he was not God while in the flesh. It is because he was doing what the Hebrew writer said about him in Hebrews chapter 2, that he was becoming in all things like his brethren. That's why he can be your mediator. That's why he can be my mediator when we stand before God, because Jesus is the only being in existence that knows what it's like to be both God and man. What does it mean to be a mediator? A mediator stands between two warring factions and finds some middle ground. And what makes a mediator capable of doing that is the mediator fully understands both sides of the issue. In order, in order for a mediator to be effective, in order for a mediator to rule justly and to rule properly, that mediator has to fully understand both sides of the problem, of what has caused the division. And so we stand in opposition to God. Why? Because Romans 3 and verse 23, we've all sinned. And Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, sin separates us from God. So we have created, those of us who've reached an accountable age and we're in our right mind, those of us that have reached that point, we've sinned. And there's now this chasm that exists between us and God. And there's only one man who can bridge, one being who can bridge that gap. And that is one who fully understands what it's like to be both. And Jesus is the only one who fully understands what it's like to be both. So the only way he's qualified to be a mediator, and I know I'm saying these things like you don't believe this. So I'm just passionate about it. I know you believe these things. So just, this is such an important topic. But the only one who's qualified to stand between us and God and mediate, find some common ground, find some reconciliation, is someone who fully understands both sides. 
So Jesus had to fully experience the human condition in order to be a righteous and qualified mediator. So that means when Jesus was in the flesh, he was not pretending to be a man. He was a man, yet he was still God. There are some who have rejected the idea that he could have been both God and man because they look at a passage like Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 8, when they talk about him being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took of himself no reputation, humbled himself, became a man. Some versions say emptied himself. And so there are some who have looked at a passage like that and see he, he was the form of God, but had to cease being the form of God when he was in the flesh. You know that the Greek word that is utilized in that passage for the word form is a continual state. It was a continual state of being. Jesus was God before he became flesh. Jesus was God while he was in the flesh, and Jesus is still God now. He was in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so that form of God, that, that word uh, is my understanding of the Greek word that we get that word form literally means it is your inner essence. It is what makes you who you are. And so Jesus' inner essence was, he was God, yet experiencing the human condition. This is a very, very rudimentary illustration. So forgive the simplicity of this in light of what we are talking about. But this illustration just popped in my head a while back and kind of helped me a little bit in trying to understand how Jesus could be both God and man. How could he be God while experiencing the human condition? Imagine the president, and if you don't like the current president, just picture whoever your favorite president is. Where I'm not, it's the, who the person is, it's not important, it's the position. But imagine, or imagine the president deciding one night, I am sick and tired of life as president of the United States. I am tired of having to have secret service with me everywhere I go. I'm tired of having to have all this prep work done whenever I go somewhere to make sure the place is safe and, and uh, the proper clearances have been done. I'm tired of every uh, word I say being scrutinized. I'm tired of everything I do being uh, scrutinized and discussed. And so I just want to experience an hour of just being a regular human being. And imagine the president sneaking out of the White House. I know this couldn't really happen, but imagine the president sneaking out of the White House, putting on a disguise, sneaking away from the Secret Service. Nobody knows he or she has left the White House. And he sneaks over into a private automobile and drives to Burger King. And he says, I'm going to have a Whopper. I'm going to have it my way. And nobody's going to know I'm here. Nobody's going to know what I'm doing. And I'm just going to enjoy being a regular Joe. I'm going to pull out my wallet and pay for it. They're not going to know who I am. And I'm just going to sit and enjoy my Whopper and my onion rings and my large Diet Coke just like anybody else. Now, while he's doing this, has he ceased being president? Is he no longer president? Oh, he doesn't have the Secret Service with him. Well, he's not the president. He got out of the White House without an entourage. He's not the president. He left the White House in a vehicle other than the armored one that he normally travels in. He's not the president. No, he's still the president. He just chose for a while to not take advantage of some of the benefits that come with the position. 
Jesus, while in the flesh, was still God. King of kings, Lord of lords. The attributes of deity. And yet, while in the flesh, he chose voluntarily, willingly, to put on a shelf some of the benefits and privileges that come with being God. He put on the shelf his omniscience. Jesus, while in the flesh, was no longer all-knowing. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom. Can someone who knows everything get wiser? Can someone who is all-wise increase in wisdom? So Jesus, while in the flesh, gave up his omniscience. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, when he's answering the apostles' two questions, one about the destruction of the Jerusalem and one about his second coming, and answering the question about his second coming, he says, but of that day and hour knows no man, not even the angels, but my Father only. Jesus, while in the flesh, did not even know the time of his, second, of his own second coming. Jesus, while in the flesh, was not omnipresent. He was not everywhere. And yet that's all he knew in his eternal existence before becoming flesh. We can't begin to appreciate. We we don't have the capacity. We, We do not have the depth in our finite minds to appreciate what our Savior gave up to take on flesh. There's no way. Because we don't know what it's like to be God. We don't know what it's like to be self-sustaining. We don't know what it's like to be completely and totally all-powerful. We don't know what it's like to know everything. We don't know what it's like to be everywhere. We don't know what it's like to be the center of all existence. Turn with the Revelation chapter 5. I know that the book of Revelation is written in signs and symbols. There's a lot of it that is not designed to be taken literally, but there are some concepts, there are some ideas There's some principles that we can gain from reading this great book. And I want us to remind ourselves of what it's like to be Jesus in heaven. And there's this beautiful scene pictured for us in beautiful imagery beginning in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 5. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that... that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. That's what it's like to be Jesus in heaven. That's what his existence was like before he became flesh. That's what his existence has been like since. But it was not his existence while he was in the flesh. Voluntarily, willingly, the Lord let go of all of that. How many of us would be willing to do that for any period of time, especially knowing what we were in store for once we took on flesh and lived among our creation? Did we as human beings roll out the red carpet 
for our Creator when He condescended to dwell among us. Quite the opposite. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He didn't even live while He was in the flesh like a fox or a bird. One of the incredible chapters in the gospel accounts to me is Matthew chapter 8, because you get this snapshot of what it was like a day in the life of Christ while He was in the flesh. Matthew 5 through 7, we know well the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has preached this very powerful sermon. He comes down off of the mountain and the multitudes are following him and they are asking him for favors. Lord, do this for me. Lord, do that for me. He's met at the bottom of the mountain by a leper. The leper begs for mercy. The Lord touches him, heals him. A satyrian comes running to him as soon as he gets into Capernaum. says, my servant is sick. The Lord says, I'll go to your house. You remember that centurion had the great show of faith. You continue on. Jesus has been healing people, meeting people's needs, this multitude following him, everybody wanting something. He's been doing this all day long. He gets to Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law, who apparently had maybe had made plans already to provide a meal for Jesus and his disciples, Jesus gets there and she's in the bed sick with a fever. Jesus heals her. He's now having his evening meal. How many of you, after a long, hard, difficult day, when you've had people just needing something from you all day long, you moms with young children can know this in a unique way, where where you have had people that have been totally dependent upon you all day long, all day long they need something from you, and when evening comes... Don't you long for that moment, the the five minutes that you have them in the bed before they wake up and need something else? Don't you long for those five minutes? Don't you long for whatever that length of time is that you get a little bit of a break? Those of you who have spent a long day doing things for other people and you get back home, and don't you love getting back home and just having a moment to unwind in your own place, and maybe at the end of the day, finally crawling into your own bed. Isn't there nothing quite like that? Well, evening has come. Jesus is still not in his own home. And there's a knock on the door. You know who's waiting outside? All the friends and relatives of everybody who was healed earlier in the day, and they said, I think I know where he went. He'll heal you too. And now there's a brand new crowd of folks needing stuff outside the door. While he goes out and begins working again on meeting everyone's needs, someone calls out, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I believe there's a reason why on that occasion Jesus made the response that he made. Birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have a house to live in. Jesus was exhausted because he was experiencing the human condition. He was not Superman. Yes, he was God, but he did not take advantage of the privileges and benefits that come with being God to serve himself. John says about him in John chapter 1 that in him was life. He was a creator. He relied on no one for nothing. Life was in him. He was life. Life emanated from him. He gave life. He didn't need anybody to give him anything. But while he was in the flesh, the Lord sometimes dispatched angels to minister to him. 
So you have Jesus saying to this man, in essence, I don't think you know what you're asking. In the perfect way, in the kind way, in the way that only Jesus could have, you're going to follow me wherever you go, wherever I go. I need you to know something. I don't even have a house. I've not even chosen to have a home to call my own while I'm in the flesh. His man cave was a literal cave in the mountains. It didn't have AC. It didn't have a flat screen television. It didn't have a furnished refrigerator. And so when you get to the end of Matthew chapter 8, is it any wonder why Jesus is in the bottom of that boat fast asleep while a storm above the water is raging so fiercely that you've got weather-worn fishermen who I'm sure have been caught in countless storms before who literally are thinking they are going to die. You know how bad of a storm this has to be for seaworthy fishermen to be fearing for their lives? And yet Jesus is fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why? Because he's God and he's using his superpowers that only God has to make him numb to what's going on around him. Jesus was experiencing the human condition and he had spent that entire day and who knows how many days before doing nothing but meeting everyone else's needs but his own. And so that man was sleeping through a storm raging fiercely, just feet above him. Because he's exhausted. He is God and he is man. And he's experiencing everything that it's like to be a man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. In all points, in all ways, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. So he had to experience exhaustion. He had to experience anxiety. He had to experience stress. He had to experience anger. He had to experience a desire to do something wrong. He had to experience a desire to not do something that he knew he should. When we think about our Savior being tempted, we may think most of the time about him being tempted to do something that he should not do. But there's two ways to be tempted, right? Omission, commission, we were, sometimes we're tempted to do something that we should not do. Sometimes we're tempted to not do something that we know that we should. Jesus experienced both. Experiencing the human condition, Hebrews chapter 4. I think it's verse 15 or 17. I get Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and 15 and 17 mixed up. It's just a glitch. I've tried. I can't. They just, I swap them out every now and then. One in one, he's in all points made like his brethren. In the other, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Experiencing the human condition. One of the reasons why we can know that this Bible was not written by man is because there's no way that a group of man would have concocted a character like Christ 
and omitted every detail about his life from birth to age 30 except for one single solitary event. But I'm so thankful for that one single solitary event that's revealed for us when he's 12 years old and his family left him behind and he's in Jerusalem and they come back, he's in the synagogue and they're upset because they thought he had been with them. It's cost them several days in their journey back home and they come back home and they start asking him questions and he says, don't you realize I must be about my father's business? What was his father's business? was his father's business, not the cross. So you got a 12-year-old boy experiencing the human condition, and he is fully aware at the age of 12 that I've got to be about my father's business. And his father's business was Isaiah 53. And I want you to picture a 12-year-old boy. Yes, he's God, but he's also man. And he has the capacity, the capability to experience dread and worry. And I want you to think about a 12-year-old boy reading Isaiah 53, and he's reading his biography. And he's looking into the future, knowing that in a few short years, he's going to experience rejection, experience being despised. He's going to experience hatred in the most vile way that's ever been manifested on the face of the earth. And he's going to be killed by his creation. Now I want you to imagine a 12-year-old boy closing Isaiah 53 and laying it on his nightstand and blowing out his candle and just blissfully going off to sleep. Is there a 12-year-old boy capable? Well, I'll just cross that bridge when I get there. Won't think about that until the moment is at hand. I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of people through the years getting ready to have surgery. There's a conversation that I have never had, and I don't anticipate that I will ever have with one of these people in this situation. I've never had a conversation where the person about to have surgery says, I tell you what, I almost didn't make it. For my appointment to have surgery this morning, I just could, totally forgot it was on the schedule. Totally forgot it was on the calendar. Uh, the doctor told me a couple of weeks ago I was going to have open heart surgery, and I just, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. And I just didn't even think about it again. Woke up, and just thankfully, I'd put a reminder in my phone, today's the day I have open heart. I was just so glad I did that. I've never had that conversation. Those of you who have had surgery, especially surgery of some significance where there was pain involved in the recuperation, where there was risk involved in the procedure. How many of you, when the doctor told you when the surgery was scheduled, just put it out of your mind, wrote it down on the calendar, and said, I just hope I'll remember to go when the day comes, because no, no big whoop. I've talked to people who have a surgery scheduled, and, and their conversations with me have been, I'm just so ready for that day to get here. I am dreading that. I'm so ready to get it over with. I'm so ready to get on the other side of surgery. Multiply that a million times and a million times over again and put yourself in the shoes of that 12-year-old boy knowing what life has in store for him in a little over 20 years. And you can just put that out of your mind. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. 
John chapter 12. Verse 27. It's Passion Week, but it's days before, probably Monday. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So Jesus' soul is troubled. Why is it troubled? He tells us why. Do I need to say to the Father, Save me from this hour? What hour, Lord? The, the hour that represents the purpose for his coming to us in the flesh. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is my Father's business. This is why I came. This is why I'm here. This is why I've done everything that I've done up until this point. The world depends on me. Everything hangs in a balance as to whether or not I continue through. And yet Jesus was dealing with a troubling in his spirit, in his soul. He was vexed. I think it was foreshadowing of the prayer he prayed in the garden before he was arrested. Father, if it be our will, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He knew what it was like to experience dread. He knows what it's like to be able to look into the future and know something horrible is coming to you. But the thing about us, when we deal with dread, Brother Dean, I know I got to, when do I need to shut my mouth? Okay, thank you, brother. The thing about it is, is when we dread things, how many times when the event comes, was it not as bad as we built it up in our head? Sometimes something that we dreaded was as bad. Sometimes maybe it was worse. Quite often, the things that we dread are not near as bad as we created them to be in our mind. Jesus did not have that luxury. Jesus did not have that, maybe it won't be quite as bad as they told me it was going to be. Jesus knew it was going to be every bit as bad as they told him it was going to be. And I believe in some ways it was even worse. There's only one statement that Jesus made from the cross that's recorded more than once. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus' statement when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, for the first time in his eternal existence, has felt the departing of the Father and the Spirit. He no longer feels them dwelling within him. He no longer feels that connection, that, that attachment. You remember when the woman who had the issue of blood and Jesus was surrounded by the throng and she could not get to him, she said, but if I'll just touch the hem of his garment, maybe something good will happen. And she was healed. You remember Jesus turns around. Why? Because he felt the tug on his garment? No, he felt the Spirit, the power of the Spirit that was the healing that that woman received because the Lord, while he was in the flesh, was de dependent for the first time in his life on someone else. And so the Lord, while he was in the flesh, was dependent upon the Spirit for his miraculous power. That's why when... The Pharisees on that occasion said he cast out devils by the prince of devils. Jesus said, listen, everything that you say and do to the Son of Man can be forgiven. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be. How had they just blasphemed the Holy Spirit? It's because they had said the one by whose power those demons had been cast out was the prince of devils. They had called the Holy Spirit the prince of devils, not Jesus. And so Jesus feels the power of the Holy Spirit leave his body. 
And then when he's on the cross, he feels the Holy Spirit leave his body. But not because it's power moving through him. It's because the Father and the Spirit had to leave him on that cross to pay in solitary, in isolation, the price for our sins. And I believe in that way it was even worse than Jesus envisioned it could have been. Because in his eternal existence, he'd never experienced it. Never experienced a separation, a departure from the Father. And it's interesting, when he calls out to the God on that occasion, my God, my God, he uses the same name for God that the patriarchs did in the Old Testament. It's a name to denote his majesty, his power, not a familial relationship. Jesus felt so isolated. He felt so long on the cross because he's experiencing paying the price for our sins as a man. Yes, and as God. But while he's paying the price for our sins, he's experiencing something that he's never felt before. And that is being absent from the Father. And so at that moment when he calls out, he does not call out to him in the way that he prayed to him in the garden just hours before when he said, Abba, Father, if it be your will. He does not call him Abba on this occasion. He says, Eloi, El, the singular of Elohim, as it appears in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. He calls out to him in the way that Abraham would have called out to him. With a lack of this father-son attachment or connotation to the name. He didn't even feel like he could call him Abba because he felt such a separation. So I'm so thankful that one of the last things we hear Jesus say from the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He paid the price. Right before he made that statement, he said, it is finished. He felt the Father return. Into your hands I commit my spirit fully experienced the human condition, gave up everything. That scene in Revelation chapter, four, chapter 5, that's all the word, the Logos knew. And yet let go of it to condescend among his creation and take on flesh and deal with dependence deal with relying on someone else, deal with having to learn. Remember what he says in John chapter 5, everything that my father taught me, I do. How can an all-knowing being be taught? The Hebrew writer says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. How can an all-knowing being learn anything? He chose to take his omniscience, his omnipresence, and put it on a shelf reclaim it when he ascended back into heaven but while he was in the flesh while he was still God but yet he chose not to benefit from all of the things that come with being God Jesus the man he's our only advocate and our only mediator if we don't appreciate him if we don't accept him if we don't acknowledge him as such then we're standing before God with no hope thank you so much for your kind attention this evening.